well, what a gift it is to be together in the same room and to see some new faces this week. We've really missed you. I've got to say, preaching to a camera just isn't the same as being able to look into your eyes and see your faces. And of course, we remember that there's only part of our community here in person. There's so many more of us watching from home and in small groups at home churches watching together. But it's just beautiful to be able to to come together week after week and to be reminded that we're part of a community, especially after such a long period of isolation. And one of the things I've been looking forward to the most in the recent months is seeing some of these little kids in person again. I don't know if you guys remember, some of you probably remember before uh, COVID hit, we kind of had like a baby boom at Evergreen, right? Where there's all these babies born. And so it's really cool to be able to see uh, some of these kids as they grow and to just be reminded that we're, we're like an intergenerational family. Um, one of my good friends, Lindsay, has a daughter named Chloe. And a couple of years ago, Chloe got uh, a present. She got a gift of a new bicycle. And so she was really excited about this. As you can imagine, she was seven years old, and she had, like, big plans to go on long bike rides on the trails behind her house. But there was one problem for Chloe, and that was that her parents don't ride bikes. So they didn't have bikes. She was a little bit too young to go out on her own. And so I uh, agreed to take Chloe out for some bike rides. And the first time I showed up at their house, Chloe was pumped. Okay, so she'd chosen out like her special bike riding outfit. She showed me her helmet and her new bike. And uh, we went out there and we hit the road. And Chloe was doing awesome. There was just kind of like this one thing that I noticed was that every now and then she would kind of like drag her feet on the ground. But I figured as she kept riding, she'd get more comfortable, get more experienced, and eventually this would kind of take care of itself, you know? But then we got to this hill. It was kind of like a hill where uh, we were in a, in a subdivision and it was connecting this subdivision to a trail. And so it was pretty steep. And I was pretty nervous about letting this little girl like go down this big hill on her bike. But Chloe was confident. I mean, if you know Chloe, she's normally pretty confident. So she's confident. She's reassuring me. So I just, I looked her in the eyes and I said, Chloe, you just really need to make sure that you go slowly. And so she looked at me and she nodded and she agreed. It was very reassuring. And then before I knew what happened, this kid was like flying down this hill. She was, she was gone. And I mean, she did not go slow. Okay, she didn't so much as like tap her brakes. She just flew down this hill at the bottom of this hill. There was like a crowd of people and they like dove out of the way, kind of like the Red Sea, the parting of the Red Sea. And like, I don't even know how this happened, but eventually there was like, like this crash and Chloe did some sort of ninja gymnastics move and she landed on her feet somehow, and her bike landed on the ground, and she was just standing there looking at me. And so I said to her, Chloe, why didn't you use your brakes? And she said, my what? (laughs) And I said, your brakes, why didn't you use your brakes? And she looked at me, and she was like, this bike doesn't have any brakes. 
And as I began to put things together, I realized what happened was that Chloe had learned to ride on one of those pedal brake bikes, right? And so when she got her new bike and she pushed her feet back and the bike didn't stop, she figured that this new bike just didn't have any brakes at all. And so the whole time we'd been riding, Chloe had no idea that stopping was actually even an option for her. Do you ever feel like that? As I was driving home after this big ordeal, I was kind of reflecting back on the experience and laughing about it, and then it suddenly kind of struck me that in a lot of ways, this is how I was living my life. Always on the go, moving from one thing to another, never really taking time to slow down and to reflect on what I was doing or why I was doing it. In our culture, we put so much value on productivity and efficiency and really sometimes just busyness that it can feel like life doesn't really have any breaks. And what happens when we live in this frenzy of activity is we lose our sense of purpose. We forget why we're even the doing the things that we're doing in the first place. And often we end up burning ourselves out doing things that really don't matter and then finding that we don't have time left to do the things that really do matter. And one of the things that's happened over the course of the past year is that life threw on the brakes. Or maybe it's more accurate to say that life did one of those kind of like crash, ninja move kind of things, and all of a sudden life as we knew it came to a crashing halt, right? We've all felt this, right? And I know this season has looked different for everyone. For some people, they've been busier than they've ever been before and under more pressure than they've ever been before. For other people, life has slowed down so much that it's been hard, it's been really difficult and painful. But what's true for all of us is that our lives were disrupted. Our habits, our routines, our schedules, the way we were spending our time, life as we knew it was disrupted. And now as things start to reopen and we start to imagine what life might look like on the other side of this pandemic, we all kind of have this opportunity maybe for the first time to stand back and to look at the way we were living before and to decide how we want to move forward, to decide what we want to hold on to and what we want to let go of, to decide really what matters to us and to shape our lives around that. And as a church in this season, we have the opportunity to do the same kind of thing. Over the past year, doing things the way we've always done them as a church hasn't been an option that was on the table, right? The way we understood church, the way we understood even what it looks like to live as a Christian was disrupted. And as much as there's been challenges to that, it's also kind of opened up this opportunity for us to reflect on what God might be calling us to let go of to repent of, and what God might be inviting us into in this next season so that we can live more faithfully in our world. 
And this is why over the course of the past month, we've been working through a series called Why Church? We've been talking about why we even do this whole church thing in the first place. What's church all about? Is church even relevant in the 21st century? Like, can't we just listen to the podcast? Right? Does church really matter? What's God's purpose for church? And we believe that as we honestly seek to let God renew and reshape the way we understand church and do life together, that there's this incredible opportunity to shine some light in the dark places of our world and to offer hope and peace where right now it seems like those things could never exist. And so as we've been sifting through this question, we've been looking at the book of Acts. Acts is the second part of a two-volume work by an author named Luke. The first book that we have by him is the Gospel of Luke. You guys are amazing. How did you guess that? And, and then we have the book of Acts, right? So Luke kind of covers the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And then Acts kind of picks up the story after Jesus' resurrection, and it takes, takes it from there. It looks at how things move forward from that point on. And Luke tells us that for 40 days after Jesus' resurrection, he spent time with the disciples, teaching them about the kingdom of God. Luke actually tells us very little about these 40 days. Like, I wish we had more. Can you imagine what those 40 days would have been like? He tells us very little, but he does go out of his way to highlight a couple of very important things. And these these things are important to keep in mind as we're reading the rest of the story because they kind of frame the book of Acts. First of all, He tells the disciples before he ascends into heaven that they need to wait. That they need to stay in Jerusalem and they need to wait for the Holy Spirit. Okay, so he makes sure that the disciples know that he's not leaving things to to them to do things on their own, right? He doesn't want them to go and have a business meeting. He doesn't want them to go and do strategic planning. He tells them to go and to wait for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is going to come and fill them and empower them to continue on in this ministry. And then he goes out of his way to tell us something else that seems kind of strange, but it's actually really significant. He tells us that the disciples kept asking him this question. We talked about this a couple of weeks. You guys remember what the question was? He said, they kept asking, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore your kingdom? Right, so this has come up throughout the gospels and it comes up again now. They keep asking him this question. And when the Jewish people uh, thought about the Messiah, they had a very specific idea in mind, right? They had this idea that the Messiah was going to be a warrior king who would defeat the other nations and who would push Israel into a position of power and prosperity and blessing. That's what they'd been expecting. And so needless to say, Jesus, when he showed up on the scene, Jesus did not fit their mold, right? He did not fit the mold for the Messiah. They didn't, he didn't line up with what they had in mind. But it was like the disciples couldn't let go of this expectation that maybe somehow this would still be kind of how things ended for them. And Jesus' response to this is really interesting. He says, they're not going to know the dates or the times, but they're going to be given power, right, through the Holy Spirit. And then they're going to be, remember, they're going to be his witnesses throughout the world. Now, In the first century, 
when a new king was put into place, they couldn't spread the word over Twitter. Okay, they couldn't just post this stuff online and spread it out that way. There weren't newspapers, there wasn't radio, there wasn't television. And so when a new king was put into place, messengers would be sent out and they would announce that the new king was reigning. They would be witnesses to the new kingdom. And so Jesus is actually hinting at something here. This was the moment. This was the time that the Jewish people had been waiting for. He was the Messiah who was going to be setting things right and ushering in this time of blessing. But at the same time, it wasn't going to look anything like what they'd imagined. And as the book of Acts goes on, we see this start to take shape. We see what life looks like when Jesus is king and when Jesus' kingdom breaks into the world. And so these are important things to keep in mind as we move through the book of Acts and as we look at our passage for this morning. So Jesus says these things, and then he ascends into heaven, and the disciples do what Jesus told them to do, right? They go to Jerusalem, and they wait. And on the day of Pentecost, it happens, right? There's wind, there's fire. They start speaking in different languages, languages they don't even know or understand. Other people are hearing the gospel proclaimed in their own language for the very first time. And then Peter stands up and he starts preaching like he's never preached before, right? He starts preaching his heart out. And as the sermon goes on, the people who are listening to him start to realize that they have made the mistake of all mistakes, right? Have you ever made a big mistake? Okay, this is a bigger mistake. Okay, they've made like a huge mistake. They have crucified the Messiah, Let that sit with you for a second. The people listening to this sermon, experiencing God moving in this way, are now realizing for the first time that they have crucified the Messiah. And so they ask what they need to do, and Peter tells them to repent. To repent, to be baptized, to receive God's forgiveness, and to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Isn't that beautiful? That's beautiful. Peter doesn't say, You know, you might as well just pack up your stuff and go home because the blood's on your hands, guys. Like, you are guilty in this. He doesn't say that. He says, today, starting right now, starting in this very moment, change your mind. Change the way you've been thinking. Change the way you've been living. And open yourself up to receive the gift that God wants to give you. And 3,000 people do exactly that. That is a pretty effective altar call right there. 3,000 people repent, they're baptized, and they join this movement of people who are trying to figure out what it means to live in light of this reality that Jesus was dead and now he's alive. So this is where we find ourselves in this story this morning, okay? Like, we're not even two chapters into the book of Acts and, like, the world is an entirely different place than it was when the book of Acts began, And in today's passage, we start to see what kind of community takes shape as people reorder their lives in light of the reality that Jesus is king and that they are called to be his witnesses throughout the world. So if you have your Bible, you can open it up with me to Acts chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 42 to 47 this morning. It says this, 
All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. So the very first thing that we hear about this community is that there were practices that shaped the way they lived their day-to-day lives. Okay, I'm going to read the list again. Luke names four specific things. I'm going to read them again. I want you to pay attention to how excited you get when you think about doing these things. Okay? So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. Okay. How excited, like on a scale of one to 10, ten, one being like watching paint dry, 10 being like, you just want a vacation, you got the call, it's not a scam, there's no pandemic. Okay, like one to 10, how excited did you get when you thought about engaging in those practices? If we're honest, if we're, <laughs> oh, bless your heart. <laughs> that's great. That's great. 11 off the charts. If we're honest, a lot of us, most of the time, don't really get all that fired up when we think about doing things like reading scripture, right? Sharing in the Lord's Supper, praying. If we're really, really honest, most of us aren't rearranging our schedules to make sure that we can get to every prayer meeting. Most of us aren't jumping up and down when we walk into the door and we see that we have the little cuppy things we're sharing in the Lord's Supper this morning. Often we really get kind of apathetic about these spiritual practices. But I think that that's because we often lose our sense of why we even do them and what they really mean. For the early Christians, these were not just early, or these were not just religious rituals. These weren't obligations. They weren't trying to earn God's favor by checking off a list of things that they were supposed to do. This was a group of people who had had their lives turned up upside down by the reality that Jesus has risen from the dead, and these practices were things that they did to kind of reorient themselves towards the kingdom of God and anchor themselves to Christ so that they could sift through how to live that out. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching because they needed to learn how to see the world differently. So much of how we see the world is shaped by the culture that we live in. Like we pick up these cues all the time about what we should value and what we should prioritize in our lives. And the message of Jesus is countercultural. It reorders our values and our priorities. It changes how we look at literally everything. And so these believers committed themselves to learning from the apostles so that they could know how they were called to really live as God's people. They devoted themselves to fellowship because they knew they couldn't do this thing on their own. They knew that they needed each other. They ate meals together and shared the Lord's supper together. Again and again, they came back to this meal that reminded them that Jesus was at the center of everything. And they devoted themselves to prayer. That connection, that relationship that they had with God sustained them and empowered them for everything that they did. So these were really important practices to this community as they started to work out their faith in their lives. And then let's look at verse three. 
It says, a deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miracles, miraculous signs, and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. It's pretty amazing. So we see this generosity, right? This incredible generosity that becomes a defining characteristic of this community. In the Greek, this wasn't like a one-time thing. It wasn't like they joined the community, they sold everything they had, and they kind of divvied it up. This was like an ongoing thing. Whereas needs came up within the community, people who had more than they needed would sell it to make sure that they could give what, what other people needed in their time of need. It was like these people were so transformed by God's generosity that they couldn't imagine holding on to their possessions for themselves. They had everything that they needed and more in Christ. And they knew that people were more important than their possessions. Verse 46. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day, the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. So as this community embodies the love of God, people are drawn in. There's something attractive about it. People were being saved. So Luke almost kind of paints this picture, this utopian picture of the first church, right? They're a diverse community of believers. They're living together in unity. They pray together. They share everything that they have. They eat together. They take care of one another. They're filled with joy. I mean, like, it's perfect, right? It's perfect. Is this what comes to mind for you when you think about church? If you were to go into the community and to ask a hundred random people off the street what comes to mind for them when they think about church, do you think that this is the kind of stuff that you would hear about? You're not looking too confident. I mean, we use words like diversity and unity and love in our vision documents, right? We put them on our church signs, we print them in our promotional brochures, but is that what people find when they walk into the church? A few years ago, there was an event called the Fire Festival. Has anybody ever heard of it? Not to be confused with Acquire the Fire, very different. No, okay. Um, so the Fire Festival was this music festival that was promoted online that was supposed to be like one of the most VIP, luxury, once-in-a-lifetime experiences. It was targeted towards millennials and uh, like my people, you know, were so vulnerable towards being manipulated online. And uh, the advertisements showed pictures of like uh, an exclusive private island. There were yachts. There were going to be these private luxury villas. There was going to be um, gourmet food by a celebrity uh, catering company. This event was like totally hyped up online and people paid thousands of dollars. I mean, some like many thousands of dollars for tickets and it like totally sold out. It was a big deal. 
Okay, but without going into all of the details about how this took place, you can look this up. On, there's lots of articles about it and that kind of thing. There were some shortcomings in the planning. Okay, and there was a little bit of fraud alongside that. And as things kind of fell apart, like bands pulled out, like the catering company pulled out, and when guests arrived on this island, it became more and more apparent that the reality was not going to live up to their expectations. Okay, they were, there weren't enough accommodations for everyone at all. There just wasn't enough places to put them. The accommodations that did exist were far from luxury villas and yachts. They were actually leftover hurricane tents from Hurricane Matthew. Uh, they were soaked because there'd been a, been a storm the night before and they couldn't get all of the mattresses out of the place on time. Uh, the food wasn't exactly gourmet either. This is uh, the picture that kind of became the infamous symbol of the event that was the fail- failure of the fire festival. So this got posted online as it was kind of being exposed that this was not what it was all uh, cracked up to be. Um, if they had have known their audience, they could have just put some like avocado on that toast and it would have passed with the millennials as gourmet, right? They weren't thinking. But it turned out to be a massive gong show, right? And uh, this is, we, we know this to be true. Things don't always live up to their marketing campaigns, right? Things don't always live up to their marketing campaigns. Now, I know I don't have to convince you that the church hasn't always done so well at being the kind of community that Luke describes in this passage. The church doesn't always live into the words that we print in our vision statements or that we put on our church signs or that we write about on our uh, promotional pamphlets. But here's the thing. It doesn't take long before things get messy in the early church too. Even in the book of Acts, we see this unfold. There's lying, there's greed, there's conflict, there's division. And throughout the the rest of the New Testament, We see Paul and the other authors addressing all kinds of messy situations that started to rise up in these churches. But I think that that's actually exactly why Luke lays this out so clearly for us. Because he wants us to know that this is what it looks like. He wants us to know that this is what a community looks like when people are living together with Christ at the center. This is what God's kingdom looks like. And whenever we get pulled off course or distracted or messy, you know how it goes, we can come back to this passage and we can be reminded that this is how we're called to live together in community. And in this moment that we're in, as we're starting to reopen and we're sifting through how we want to move forward, this is the perfect place for our church to start. And there are four shifts specifically that I think that God's inviting us to make and that I think this passage calls us to make as we move forward. The first one is this. I think that God is calling us away from a life of individualism and towards a life that's shared in community. One of the things that became very clear very quickly during this pandemic is just how connected and interdependent we really all are. 
In our Western context, we can kind of live with this illusion that our lives are our own, right? We should be able to do what we want without really thinking about how it impacts other people. It shouldn't really matter to them, right? We put a lot of emphasis on our own goals, on our own fulfillment, and we don't always pay attention to how our actions are impacting the people around us. But the teachings of Jesus aren't something that we can live out on our own. I mean, we're commanded to to love one another, to live in unity, to serve one another, to care for one another, to forgive one another. These aren't like personal goals that we can work on in our spare time. This is a way of life that only actually makes sense in the context of community. And community changes us. When we belong to a group of people who love us and accept us unconditionally, it changes us. When we're put in situations where we have to learn to love and to learn from people who are different from us, people who we might not normally hang out with, it changes us. The church should be the one place where everyone is welcomed, where everyone is treated as family and where everyone has the opportunity to be a part of what God is doing in the world. Called to shift from a life of individualism towards life shared in community. The second shift I think that God is inviting us to make is away from a consumeristic faith and towards a holistic faith that shapes our entire lives. In our culture, we are primed from the day that we were born to be good consumers. All day, every day, we are bombarded with advertisements that tell us about all of the things that we're lacking and about what shiny new product we can purchase to take care of those needs. And as good consumers, we are always on the lookout for the next greatest thing that can fulfill all of our needs for like three easy payments of $19.99. And because we're so used to looking at the world in this way, it's really easy for it to kind of sneak into the way we live our faith. I mean, like we don't even really try to hide this, right? What do you call it when you're looking for a new church? Church shopping, (laughs) right? We go to a church to consume the religious product that we're looking for. And then often we just kind of sit back and we consume, right? We take in the worship, we take in the teaching, maybe we take in some programs if they kind of suit our needs, and then we decide what we like and what we don't like. But God doesn't call us to be good consumers. Okay, that's Walmart's dream for us. The church isn't a place where we go to consume religious goods and services. It's a community of people who are doing life together in light of the reality that Jesus died and now he's alive and that changes everything. We see uh, in this community of believers in our passage, they, they start patterning these lives into new rhythms that connect them with God and to one another and to the story that they were now a part of. They were committed to learning about Jesus, to sharing in meals, right, to praying together. They included people who were different than them. They practiced generosity and they let their faith shape their entire lives. And when they did that, 
as a community, they became like a visible expression of something greater. They became a visible expression of what life looks like when Christ is at the center. They weren't consumers, they were participants. Their relationship with Christ shaped their entire lives. Next, I think God's inviting us to shift away from living with closed fist and towards an open-handed posture of living. Did you ever feel like you don't have enough? We spend a lot of time focusing on the things that we lack. We never really feel like we have enough money. We certainly never feel like we have enough time. We often don't feel like we have newest stuff. Like, we never really feel like we have enough. We tend to live with this mindset of scarcity. And so when, that, when we're living with that mindset, we, we hang on really tightly to what we have. But what we see happen in this community is a total change of heart when it comes to their possessions, right? They're not holding on to anything. They know that they have everything that they need in Christ. And so when somebody has a need within the community, somebody sells something, right? They sell property, they sell their goats, they sell whatever they have, and they take care of the need because they trust God. Like they really trust that God is going to provide for them. They know that they're being taken care of. And when we understand how generous God is, then we're free. And we're free to receive what we need from him and then to hold our hands open in a posture of generosity and to, uh, to share with others. In our world where we put so much value on possessions and on being wealthy, like it would be a sign and a wonder for the church to be able to live this out more fully. And the fourth shift that I want to mention is this. I think that God is calling us away from a life of frantic activity towards a life that's centered in Christ. John Ortberg tells a story about a conversation that he had with Dallas Willard. Some of you might be familiar with Dallas Willard. He was an, an author and a theologian. And one day Ortberg called him looking for advice. Essentially, he asked him how he could make sure that he would become the kind of person that he wanted to be. And so he asked this to Dallas Willard, and then there was like a long silence on the other line of the phone, and Willard said this, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. So Orberg like wrote that down, right? And he's like, okay, okay, what, what else? What, what's next? There's another long period of silence, and then Willard said, there's nothing else. Hurry is the great enemy of the spiritual life in our day. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. When I read this passage from the book of Acts, I don't get the sense that this group of believers is in a hurry. They're not running around from one place to the next. They have a really clear sense of what their lives are all about. Their lives are centered in Christ and everything just kind of flows out of that. As things open up and our lives get settled into this new normal, whatever that looks like, it's gonna be really tempting for us to start to clutter our schedules with a whole lot of activity. 
in our personal lives and as a church family. But we have an opportunity in this season to be really intentional about how to move forward. We have an opportunity to learn how to use the brakes and to decide what really matters to us, what we want to hold on to and what we want to let go of so that we can move forward with intentionality into this new season. God is calling us to be people who know what we're here for and to live lives that are centered in Christ. We live in a world that is desperate. Have you noticed? Have you been looking at the news lately? Have you been checking out Twitter? We live in a world that is desperate for the healing and the hope and the freedom that we have in Christ. And we have like an incredible opportunity in this moment to let God's spirit to shape us into the kinds of people who are witnesses to the reality that Jesus is king. And to let everyone know that they are invited to be a part of this community that's defined by love and grace and generosity. And Jesus always meets us where we are. Right? So sometimes we feel like there's a really big gap between where we are and where we need to be. But Jesus meets us where we are, not where we should be. And he just moves in us and brings us into the right direction. This morning, we're going to share in the Lord's Supper together. And just like we read about, right, that this community used to do together. And as we do that, let's make sure that we don't miss the significance of what we're doing together, of what we're remembering and of what we're declaring as we share in this practice. That Jesus is at the center of everything that we are and everything that we do. And that through his death, and resurrection, we have been rescued and we have been brought into a new life that's filled with hope and grace and peace. So Pastor Jeff is gonna come up and lead us through communion. Uh, Would you just join me now as we pray together? God, we thank you for who you are. God, we thank you that Jesus is king and that you invite us to be participants in his kingdom. God, we we thank you that your grace is sufficient and that, God, you, you know where we're at in our own lives. You know where we're at as a church family. And uh, that's where you meet us, God, but you call us forward into new things. And I pray that in our own lives and as a church family, we wouldn't miss this moment. We wouldn't miss what you have for us, this opportunity to discern what we need to repent of and what you're inviting us into. God, we love you and we trust you. Help us to be faithful witnesses in our broken worlds. In your name we pray, amen.